0: Welcome to the new money review podcast i'm paul amory editor of new money review my guest on this episode of the podcast is scott weatherill who's chief dealer at a cryptocurrency market maker called b2c2 in tokyo scott has recently published uh, what i thought was a really interesting article on china at blockchain uh, it's a topic that's attracting everybody's attention given that china's about to launch a new digital currency so without further ado uh, here scott Scott, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Uh, could you please start by telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself, uh, who, who you work for and what is your role?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, a, a little quick bio on me. Um, I was a mathematics and probability student in Australia and then after that I, um, I did six years in investment banking both in the Goldman Sachs Sydney office and then in Tokyo. Um, in Tokyo I, I was a trader, in, in the Sydney office I was a, in FX sales but in Tokyo Um, I think I matured a little bit more and my focus was on currencies um, and in particular Aussie, Kiwi and Yen because they're the local currencies in Asia hours. Um, But for the last two years, I I made the step into cryptocurrency and now I'm working for an OTC liquidity provider, um, B2C2.
0: Scott, China's been a big mover in cryptocurrency and blockchain for several years, but something last year about the country's digital currency plans caught your attention. What was it? Last year there were those
1: headlines around China embracing blockchain um, and at the time there was a lot of confusion as to um, what sort of message they wanted to um, send to the market because originally she, she praised blockchain a lot and the market had a huge response uh, and a lot of Chinese coins had wild rallies. Uh, and then shortly after there were some crackdowns um, and obviously the market tanked and there was a big leverage and it was very painful for people um, late last year. And so I just wanted to kind of frame why I thought that was happening and why they are pivoting more towards blockchain uh, in the context of, you know, their economic troubles. So that was really the point of the, uh, the article to try and um, give some perspective on the Chinese economy and the fact that growth doesn't really mean anything um, and try and describe some of the internal struggles they're facing and why blockchain may be helpful for the Chinese Communist Party or Xi uh, and his closest allies within the party
0: where are the conflicts between those different um, ideas you know this public idea of public blockchain and let's say the state approved blockchain that China seems to be introducing?
1: You have to make a very big distinction or draw a distinction between uh, Bitcoin and you know a public decentralized blockchain that can be highly profitable to Chinese miners given that they have access to very cheap um, electricity. Um, I view that as simply. Uh, a very profitable industry in China, due to their natural geography and how they have lots of, uh, you know, hydroelectric power that they can harness. Um, so that's more, uh, just a pinch of capitalism within the economy, and it makes sense for them to do it, and so they do do it. Um, but a state-run blockchain um, that is implemented within the bounds of the borders in China, um, I think the only purpose that it could possibly have, uh, there's no real economic. Purpose. It would cost them money to run the blockchain, um, and I assume there would not really be any mining, just uh, state-run nodes. Uh, and I think that would purely be for the purpose of monitoring all the transactions within the whole economy, um, trying to stamp out corruption and graft, which there has been a long history of in
0: China. You, you mentioned in your article that one of the most popular apps in China has uh, has got a started recommending a course for. The general public to educate themselves uh, about blockchain, and that those that course covers Bitcoin and Ethereum amongst other things. So they're not they're taking the the technology as a starting point, and then set, let's say moving on to recommend blockchain as a as a domestic technology. Is that is that uh, correct?
1: Yes, exactly. But um, I think you do like there's a big difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum, and you know state-run blockchain. Um, obviously, the state-run blockchain is more just a a database where they can monitor um, and kind of surveil the proletariat. Um, And in the app, yeah, that's actually, to put it bluntly, it's a propaganda app. Um, It's like the thoughts of uh, Xi Jinping. Um, And although it's the most downloaded app, I'm not sure it would be the most popular, um, but it's one that I'm sure you're probably recommended to download. Um, But, yeah, I think the Chinese... Are pretty happy with Bitcoin, to be honest. It's a very profitable industry for them. They have um, great access to electricity. And if you popularize Bitcoin, it does make it easier for people to adopt a state-run blockchain for, you know, transactional purposes and, and day-to-day
0: stuff. Okay, so the state-run blockchain presumably is, is the infrastructure that will underlie the sovereign digital currency that everybody is uh, expecting with, with interest uh, from China.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's basically just a digital yuan. I mean, they already have a digital yuan, um, but it's probably a little harder for um, authorities to track all of the banking records and the loans. Um, they want to centralize that, and that's a little bit easier to do if you have uh, blockchain technology um, managing the whole system. Essentially- Sorry,
0: uh, Scott, Let me just uh, I just wanted to clarify that. So you, when you said they already have a digital, digital one, you're talking about the... Uh, high level of digital payments that already exist in China through yeah, it's already um, through 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 apps that uh, people use on their mobile phones and and so on.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. It's already pretty much a digital uh, economy. It's virtually cashless. You have um, Alipay, Ali WeChat Pay, all of that sort of stuff. I'm I'm not an expert on the mechanics of those in particular, um, but for for instance there's a huge amount of loan issuance going on in China and there's a huge amount of um, corruption at at various levels of the state-owned enterprises. Um, And so during the creation of credit, during that whole process, there's lots of deals being made between different different people of various um, stature and it's probably hard to track for the people in Beijing all of the financial dealings that are occurring at all levels of those state-owned enterprises. Because essentially, they're they're electronic records um, in different databases scattered across the country, you know, in in different banks. If you introduce a state-run blockchain, um, you can make it so that people have to put all of those records in one database, and that database is the state-run blockchain. And then you could run analytics um, and essentially supervise every single financial transaction that takes place, which I don't think... The people in the uh, the party in Beijing currently has the ability to do. And so, in my view, introducing a state-run blockchain would be for them to gain extra oversight about what financial dealings and loans and credit creation is happening on a provincial scale, which is where the where most money is predominantly being created.
0: Okay, and so we, should we see this as part of a, a global trend towards uh, national digital currencies? launched on blockchain i noticed that last week some politicians in japan expressed concern about the end of the post-world war ii dollar standard and that japan should hurry up its own plans to introduce a digital currency this seems to be spreading very quickly around the world this this type of uh, initiative
1: yeah well it's 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 a good question i mean other countries certainly don't have the need um to get more financial oversight so i i don't think other countries are in as much of a predicament as, as they are economically. Um, there's not as much corruption in other countries as there is in China. Um, and this is all coming from uh, Xi's push to enact very, very difficult reforms that are going to cost a lot of uh, elites in China a lot of money. And so there's a lot of pushback in order to get the necessary reforms through in order to rebalance the Chinese economy um, so they can move more towards consumption and, you know, broader wealth for the whole population.
0: Okay. Okay. so let's let's talk, let's talk a bit more about the the prospects of this uh, initiative succeeding because I, I have the impression that many people outside China are impressed by the country's economic might, by the technological advances we see in China and are kind of watching with awe in a sense at the way that the uh, country seems to be head, uh, pressing ahead with these digital currency plans. From your article, I I gather that you're more sceptical about the chances of success and you think that China has some major internal economic problems.
1: Yeah, exactly. I I think um, uh, if you recall to when shortly after Xi came to power, I think in in 2012, one of the first things he did was um, instigate another anti-corruption campaign, you know, the, the most important, the strongest one ever. And, of course, deleveraging has always been a theme that they've been trying to do. Um, But if you look at credit and the trajectory of credit creation in the country over the last, you know, eight years, they they haven't really been successful at all. And now they're pumping a huge amount of liquidity in, you know, to to try and compensate for the coronavirus more recently. But my point is that they know what they have to do. Um, They have to rebalance the economy and they have to deleverage and they have to get the debt under control. But why can't they do it? They can't do it because there are vested interests Um, throughout the various layers in the state-owned enterprises within uh, the state capitalist system that they have that prevents Xi from pushing through the reforms he needs. Um, And those reforms, you know, broadly they all work work around transferring wealth from local governments and the local elites back to um, blue-collar workers and the poorest people. If they can succeed in doing that, um, they might have a chance at rebalancing the economy. And so, in my view, this isn't a an innovative push. Um, this this isn't because the Chinese Communist Party lacked the technology. This is more a necessary step in their um, ongoing battle against corruption and graft um, within the state capitalist system.
0: Okay, why do you think the uh, you know, this political campaign is leading to um, what you call high levels of? Over or o- levels of overinvestment or malinvestment. What what's what prompted you to draw that conclusion?
1: Um, sure. Well, um, I think there's a chart in my article where you can see, um, the GDP by breakdown, and you can look at the composition of investment and con- and consumption, um, in the U.S. economy and the Chinese economy respectively. Um, if you look at the Chinese economy, uh, particularly over the last two decades, it's been extremely investment heavy. And we also saw that, as the article states, um, in the post-World War II Soviet Union, and uh, and we know how that ended. But the important thing when you look at that breakdown is you see a decline in the consumption by, by Chinese people as a percentage of GDP. And what that really represents is the fact that they are getting uh, poorer in relation to total output. So... The way the economy works is it's purely investment-driven. They do window guidance, which was basically what Japan was doing before they had a bubble. Um, you know, in 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 the early 1990s, and that works by the central planner tells a bank that they have to lend money, so forced credit creation, forced expansion of of M3, or total social financing, as they call it in China. And then they go and they build uh, another, another city, another ghost city, another bridge, another airport. Now, those assets, they get recorded as, as investments on the GDP ledger. And so you can, you can still have huge amounts of growth, but those assets don't really provide you any revenue in future years. I mean, a ghost city is fine, but unless people are actually living there and there's an actual economy there that generates revenue and productivity, it's a pointless investment.
0: Scott, okay. let me stop you there for a second. I, I, the, your argument sounds very convincing, but at the same time, I remember uh, hedge fund manager Hugh Hendry uh, producing some videos in China probably more than a decade ago after the global financial crisis. He went went around China. He showed the level of overinvestment in residential property, these ghost cities, empty apartment blocks. Uh, in a sense, he, he put together a very convincing argument, but nothing, nothing happened. And uh, what makes you... Uh, believe that you kind of have, have identified a tipping point now? Could, they, could this not just oh, no, continue I indefinitely?
1: I haven't, I haven't actually said that they're on the verge of a bubble or anything. Um, I quite clearly state that they only run into trouble when the FX reserves um, fall to a low level. And we've actually seen that, um, that they've actually been creeping up of late um, but I think a couple of years ago, it might have been several years ago, there was a period when the FX reserves were dropping. And I remember I was in Hong Kong trading FX at the time, uh, I think on a business trip. And when some numbers came out, you had an instant response in the risk markets. The equities um, were reacting very, very sensitively to the reported FX reserve numbers. And the reason for that is is because if they can print as much money as they want and keep doing investment into non-productive assets... Um, they can do that with a closed capital account for as long as the current account surplus um, protects the currency. The problem is if they can't defend the currency and they've printed so much money within China that it starts to try and flood out, then you have a currency crisis and huge capital flows. That's that's the real risk around the whole system that they're running.
0: Okay, so let's throw the current uh, coronavirus outbreak and, and its effect on Chinese production into the mix? What, what effect is this having? Is this is this going to precipitate some wider um, damage?
1: It's a very good question. Um, I, I wish I really knew. I think I, I saw on the latest John Hopkins data, there's over 40,000 people um, confirmed that have contracted the virus. Um, so I'd imagine there's going to be pretty serious economic impact, particularly in Wuhan and, and the industries that, are, um, that exist there. But it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to really say. I mean, for those companies outside of China that have supply chains um, where Chinese factories are, you know, involved in their supply chains, they're obviously going to experience disruptions and that, that could, you know, have an impact on their performance. On the other side of the coin, if you look at the steel industry, a lot of steel is made in China. It's also made in Germany. People might... If, if the steel factories aren't running in China, someone will then go to other countries where steel is made and, and those countries will benefit from the disruptions in China. So it really depends on the particular industry and on what side of the current account ledger um, that economic activity is taking place.
0: Okay, let's let's bring in your parallel with uh, the end of the Soviet Union, which seems uh, you, in your article you point out that uh, uh, a lot of Western academics uh, really badly overestimated the the power of the Soviet system in the in the nineteen fifty sixties, and seventies, and then they were totally unprepared for when the system itself fell apart in the nineteen eighties. Isn't that a pretty dramatic comparison to, to to draw? I mean, the Soviet system was really uh, struggling internally. There, there was I, I agreed maybe parallels on the corruption front, but the infrastructure was no, nowhere near as advanced as, as China's is today. Uh, I'm interested in how you uh, arrived at that uh, parallel or that comparison.
1: Well, uh, the main comparison is, well, the main point that I'm trying to make is um, in the case of the Soviet Union, growth was very strong, particularly in the 50s and 60s. They industrialised and people were making outlandish predictions. They were actually the norm back then, but the growth was fake. It wasn't real productive growth that had... um, the prospect of being sustainable over the long term. Japan experienced a similar thing um, before it had its bubble. I think it was about 25% of, um, of global growth by component. And then after the bubble, that um, that diminished down to, I think, sub-5% or something incredible. But at the time, at its height, when all of the growth was being fueled by forced expansion of credit, which is exactly what China is doing now, um, people were very bullish on the Japanese economy. They were saying Japan's going to overtake the US within the next 10 years. So it's a matter of how you, you measure true growth and whether it's, whether it's sustainable and whether it's just the function of forced credit creation um, in M2.
0: Okay, so what is, the, what is the way out for China from this situation? How, you, you mentioned in your article that they need to deleverage to reduce the amount of internal credit. How can they do that? So
1: number one, I think they need to stop trying to maintain a very high level of growth by purely building things that they don't need. That's the first thing. Um, The next thing is they have to try and enact subsidies or perhaps lower taxes or try and orchestrate wealth transfers back to the poorest people within the, the Chinese community. So through years and years of, um, of basically printing money and putting mon- putting that money into non-productive investments, they have created a lot of wealth inequality. The people who uh, have been, you know, high up and the elites running the state-owned enterprises, they have been very enriched by this whole process, um, but it's come at the cost of widespread financial repression. The savings rate has been way below inflation and so people earning money have had less purchasing power or their purchasing power eroded over time. And not only that, workers have been generally underpaid. So that's manifested in a very low consumption rate as a percentage of GDP as per the data. And they need to try and reverse that by transferring that money back from local governments and the elite to the, the, the common man and woman.
0: Okay, and if they don't manage to do that, you're saying that we'll just see increasing political tensions within the country. If they
1: manage to do that, yeah, then, then Xi has, has the risk of a, a social revolution on his hands. Um and it also comes at a time when you have tensions and a lot of um you know uproar in Hong Kong as well. So you okay. Yeah.
0: If we put this then in a global perspective, what should we be? If we're following the global markets, including the cryptocurrency markets, what should we be looking out for as signs that the this this tension is getting worse or nearing a peak?
1: Um, Well, I think if the economy really comes under pressure, what you will first see, I believe, you will see them start to devalue the yuan. So you see the renminbi you know, go go higher, say seven and a half or eight, and markets will already start to react at that time. I think the first step, um if there really are uh, if there's real softness in China, their exports will not be strong enough to support the current account surplus which funds the FX reserves, which protects their debt ponzi that they currently have. So the most crucial thing is to watch the currency if that starts to weaken. You can probably guess that they they have a problem um, and who knows how many actual FX reserves they have? So who knows how thin they're already running uh, that buffer?
0: Okay. And what about implications for you? You, you, you at B2C. To you, you're working in cryptocurrency. What are the implications for the cryptocurrency markets?
1: So um, last year, when Dollar China started to get very bid, and you started to have a couple of announcements that you know they need to weaken it, and that, uh, and also recently the US dropped that their currency manipulated as well. But at that time, when there were a couple of sharp movements down in the renminbi, Bitcoin had a very, very tight correlation um, with the Chinese currency. And I think that reflects that if the Chinese currency does start to weaken, there could be a huge amount of outflow pressure coming from China as people try and get their money out before a currency collapse. And one of the ways that they can still do that is through cryptocurrency. And so there's a huge amount of tether trading going on in China, a uh, huge amount of Bitcoin trading. Obviously, there's a lot of, money activity. There's a lot of crypto generated there naturally as well. Um, and that crypto naturally wants to find a home um, outside the borders, if that makes sense. And so cryptocurrency is essentially uh, a medium or a vehicle through which you can get capital outflows.
0: Please explain the link to Tether. I've noticed that the the volume of issuance of Tether has been creeping up steadily. It went up again late last year and again uh, early this year. What's the link there with what's happening in China?
1: Well, I think um, I think people in Hong Kong have. I, I'm currently working in Japan, um, and we do see uh, what I what I can say is we see Tether supply coming from um, the Asian region in general, and I suspect that that Tether selling flow. Um, is originating in China or maybe through smaller countries that are constrained by capital controls. Um, As Tether can obviously move freely in the digital ether, if people can get access to Tether from within the bounds of their country and they are able to then sell that offshore, then they can potentially receive uh, fiat at an offshore location
0: so the mechanics of the trade is to obtain tether locally, which let's say within China, and then to sell it offshore, but to sell it for fiat rather than for another cryptocurrency like Bitcoin.
1: Yeah, I think so, and I, I think in general people might even be very comfortable just leaving um, their wealth in, in tether. You know, it's essentially essentially pegged. So it's, it's been it's had a pretty good track record, a few bumps here and there, but um, it has the greatest network effects. Uh, it's listed on the most exchanges. And broadly within the crypto space, I think people have a fair amount of trust um, that it is backed
0: sufficiently. Okay, so, so when you're saying that the, the the Bitcoin price is correlated with um, pressure on the Chinese yuan, you mean it's negatively correlated, that the Bitcoin goes up when there's devaluation pressure?
1: Yes, that's exactly right. Okay. Yeah. What I, what I say is Tether, demand for Tether, um, I've also noticed the demand for Tether seems to be correlated with the strength of Bitcoin. That is to say, if you take the ratio of the Tether exchanges and the Bitcoin dollar exchanges, um, sometimes Tether trades rich, which you might find surprising. But at times when Tether is trading rich, I think that represents a broad amount of outflow pressure from Asian countries where there are capital controls. Okay. Some oh, go Bitcoin, some going to Tether, some might go into Ethereum. Um, but rich Tether is a good barometer of how much outflow pressure there is.
0: Okay, and um, what what overall trends are you seeing when it comes to the liquidity of cryptocurrency?
1: Well, uh, the derivatives market in cryptocurrency, uh, particularly Bitcoin, mostly Bitcoin, really is is very impressive now. Um, there's a huge amount of perpetual swap flow. Uh, volume going through BitMEX, but you also have a huge amount of flows going through, you know, the quarterly um, future on on OKX. There are also futures you can trade on Huobi. Those, the Chinese derivatives market is incredibly liquid, and, and also it's a it's a great spot for HFT firms to be very active because um, it be, can quite can be quite lucrative um, trading the interest rate curves. So that space is incredibly liquid it's, it's almost impressive how much leverage there, there is because essentially all of these the deltas put on in the swaps and the futures they're leverage trades really they don't represent volume in the underlying cash markets
0: So what well, I'm just just to clarify uh, Scott so that uh, someone putting on a trade in um, a perpetual swap in Bit- a bitcoin perpetual swap on bitmex is not necessarily doing any conversion to or from fiat currency
1: no, they might have um, some Bitcoin. You have to collateralize that particular instrument with Bitcoin. Um, let's say they, they put Bitcoin on, on the exchange and they take a position. That doesn't represent any change in supply or demand of the, the physical coins. It's just more someone taking a view, um, a leverage bet versus wh- whoever's on the offer or whoever he matches off with on the trade, that the cash market will either go up or down. And so it's a leverage market on top of the cash market, really. And it's also probably about 10 times more liquid.
0: Right, so so the derivatives market is helping drive liquidity in the spot market, you're saying?
1: No, I don't think it's helping drive liquidity, but it can act as somewhat of a rubber band and lead the short-term moves. Because there are going to be arbitrages, Um, like ourselves who are trading both the cash markets and the derivatives markets, if you get a short-term impulse in the derivatives market, which has more liquidity, more volume, the cash markets can then get caught up as people arbitrage both of them and keep the cash market in check. Um, Recently, the derivatives market has been leading. That is to say swap funding has been high. You have had to pay... Uh, quite a high amount of implied dollar interest to ha- to maintain a long position on the swap. Um, when During the bear market, that was actually a contrarian signal. Um, but in this most recent run-up, the interesting thing has been that the leverage market has actually got the direction right and ca- the cash market has actually followed and the volumes in the cash market have been strong, which is a very positive sign. We'll see if there's a little pause in the momentum here. Um, but that is a change in dynamic from how the market was changing, say six months ago.
0: So you're generally quite bullish for the prospects for cryptocurrencies for the remainder of 2020.
1: Yeah, I, I think so. That the, the harvening is just such a strong theme in people's minds. Um, it does it does represent a fairly important inflation shock. And when you look at the broader macro landscape, you know Lagarde talking about connecting. Climate change, with monetary policy, and the risk of MMT and infrastructure spending going on there. You've got the consistent money printing in China in order to fuel investment in the US. You've got huge budget deficits, um, and arguably the US is already running an MMT-style economy. If you consider all of this and the fact that where the Federal Reserve is doing permanent open market operations and increasing their balance sheet, you have to think that real assets such as Bitcoin or gold, or even stocks, to less of a degree. They're going to perform very well. And the fact that Bitcoin has the extra kicker of this halvening coming up in the short term, uh, I think is very positive.
0: Scott, thank you very much for your time.
1: Thanks a lot, mate. Cheers.
0: for listening to this new money review podcast the world of money is changing fast we see new stores of value like cryptocurrencies new ways of paying each other like contactless and digital wallets and new ways of recording ownership new money reviews articles and our podcast can help you stay on top of what's going on if you'd like to support our work you can make a one-off donation or a regular payment details of how to do so are on our website newmoneyreview.com at the bottom right of our homepage.